Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for a November 11th, Saturday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Aurora Votes 2023. Democrats Dwindle on City Council as Kaufman Locks in Second Term by Max Levy, Sentinel, Colorado staff writer. Polis calls back state lawmakers to address spiking property taxes after voters kill Prop HH by the Sentinel. And Trujillo leaves Denver 7 after almost 40 years by Nina Josh. Inglewood to start flood reduction project by by Elizabeth Slay. Incumbent Pam Grove wins race for Littleton City Council at large seat by Nina Josh. And following up with miscellaneous articles. Aurora Votes 2023. Democrats dwindle on city council as Kaufman locks in second term. Aurora. Democrat Juan Marcano conceded the race for Aurora mayor to incumbent Republican Mike Kaufman on Thursday joining the majority of this year's Progressive City Council slate in defeat. November 7th was a banner day for Aurora Republicans who cheered Colorado voters' rejection of Proposition HH, and a bleak one for Democrats who now risk becoming further marginalized on the council as as their minority shrinks from four seats on the legislative body to three. Aurora City Council includes four at-large city, uh, four at-large council seats, six ward seats associated with each of the city's six geographic divisions, and one mayor elected by the entire city. This two, this year, two at-large seats, three ward seats, and the mayorship were up for grabs. Four current council members are on track to be re-elected, including Republicans. Francoise Bergen and Curtis Gardner, filling the Ward 6 seat and an at-large seat respectively. Unaffiliated conservative Angela Lawson, representative Ward 5, and Democrat Allison Combs, who won the other at-large seat. Marcano's Ward 4 council seat is set to be filled by incoming Republican Stephanie Hancock, while Kaufman earned himself another four-year term. The new majority will provide security as well as some additional powers to Republicans. A supermajority of seven council members and the mayor acting in concert can act unilaterally in ways that a simple majority can't, such as by dismissing members of the Aurora Civil Service Commission or moving the city's planning and annexation boundaries. As for the four ballot questions that the city council sent to voters, Ballot question 3A, sponsored by Combs, is also failing, meaning instances of gendered language in the Aurora City Charter will likely be preserved. Meanwhile, 3B, 3C, and 3D, which propose various modifications to police and fire personnel rules, are on track to pass. The three counties overlapping Aurora were mostly done counting ballots as of Thursday evening. Arapahoe County Clerk and Recorder Joan Lopez said in a social media post Thursday afternoon 
that all ballots received by her office have been counted, not including a small number of duplicated ballots. Turnout amount Turnout among Aurora voters in Arapahoe County has been pegged at about 37.2%. The Adams County Clerk and Recorder's Office posted on social media Thursday morning that it has counted all ballots received by the close of Election Day. Douglas County spokesperson Wendy Holmes also said Thursday that the county had about 1,000 ballots on hand left to count by the end of the day, Wednesday which would not be enough to change the outcome of any contest. Counties have until November 15th to count ballots cast by overseas voters and those serving in the U.S. military. Voters also have until the 15th to cure ballots with missing signatures and other discrepancies. Blue seeing red. Aurora's step towards conservatism means the council will likely double down on work-first and sweep-based approaches to reducing homelessness, punitive strategies for discouraging crime, and tax cuts and regulatory rollbacks designed to benefit businesses. Mike Kaufman has said his priorities for his second term as mayor will include improving public safety by investing in the city's police department, and continuing to support tougher criminal penalties. He has also spoken about wanting to encourage the development of affordable housing, particularly in lower-income neighborhoods. Before becoming mayor in 2019, Kaufman served in the U.S. House of Representatives and as Colorado's Secretary of State and Treasurer. He previously founded a property management company in Aurora, and is a veteran of the U.S. Army and Marine Corps. The mayor could not be reached for comment Thursday. Kaufman claimed about 52.6% of the vote between the three counties, while Juan Marcano received 40.6%, and outsider Democrat Jeff Sanford took home 6.9%. Marcano conceded once Arapahoe County released results shortly after 4 p.m., that show Kaufman continu continuing to lead by several thousand votes. By Thursday evening, all but one Democrat had announced the conclusion of their campaigns, with, Joe, with John Gray in Ward 4 saying he would wait to speak with his campaign manager. Marcano emerged as a prominent progressive voice on the council following his election in 2019 often coming into conflict with conservatives over social issues and the council's spending priorities. The architectural designer and child of Puerto Rican immigrants advocated for housing-first policies to address homeless camp camping along with nonprofit housing development and alternatives to traditional policing and jail time for criminals. After conceding, Marcano said he was pessimistic about the new council and the ability of the majority to tackle problems facing the city. I think housing is going to be, continue to be a struggle for folks, and obviously wages are going to remain far below where they ought to be, he said. There's going to be more folks out on the streets. The solutions that Kaufman and the Republican majority ran on including the folks who are about to get elected here, are completely ineffective. 
When asked why voters have rejected all but one progressive candidate this year, Marcano and other Democrats brought up the spending gap. Conservative candidates spent about 1.8 times as much as the Democrats who appeared on the ballot. And conservative dark money groups spent several hundred thousand dollars more than their progressive counterparts. It's so expensive to get the message out there. I didn't do it. I couldn't do it, said Ward 6 candidate Brian Matisse, who invested $80,000 of his own money into his campaign. How do you respond to all of the lies? They're saying I'm soft on crime, and there were accusations that I'm a socialist, which are absurd. I was a Republican most of my life. Marcano also blamed the incumbent advantage held by most of the Republican candidates for Democrats' struggles. Marcano and Ward 5 candidate Chris Rhodes both said the local Democrat Party will need to evaluate what may drive progressive Aurorians to the polls before the next council election in 2025. Republicans have figured out that they can just keep fear-mongering on crime and that turns their people out. But we haven't figured out what turns out our people. We need to figure out what Democratic voters actually care about so they show up and vote, Rhodes said. Combs' re-election was the one bright spot for Democrats emerging from this electoral cycle. She traded her Ward 5 seat for an at-large seat and had claimed more votes than any other candidate, with the exception of Kaufman, as of Thursday evening. When asked what role a diminished progressive minority might play on the council, Combs said she, Ruben Medina, and Crystal Murillo will continue to advocate for policies that have community support and try to find common ground with Republicans. She was also hopeful that her conservative colleagues would take the faith placed in her by voters seriously. I hope that Kaufman will see that as a clear statement from folks that they do want him and the Republicans to work across the aisle, Combs said. I really hope to see some change from my colleagues in terms of the outright rejection and shutting down of discussion around issues. Republicans say theirs was the winning message. For Republicans, the latest election was a sign that Aurora voters trust the council's current conservative leadership and their approach to social issues such as public safety and homelessness. Curtis Gardner, who beat out Democrat Thomas Mays and fellow Republican Joan O'Scott for an at-large seat, said the vast majority of voters who he spoke with during the campaign expressed concern about crime. Especially in central Aurora, I remember we were in a neighborhood around Chambers Road and Mexico Drive, and, I mean, every door we knocked on they talked about how they heard gunshots at night, and their cars were getting broken into, Gardner said. I think most people want the same things. They want safe schools, and they want to feel safe when they go to church, or when they go to work. For me, and some of the other candidates, the focus was really on public safety. Certainly both sides worked hard, but that difference in the messaging probably won out. Yard signs for Kaufman advertised the mayor as tough on crime, 
Another conservative candidate also ran on platforms that included tougher penalties for criminals as part of their approach to public safety. While Scott ultimately fell to Combs and Gardner, he too believed Republicans' emphasis on protecting residents from criminals brought voters to the polls. I knocked on, I would venture to say, thousands of doors, and that was the number one issue at the door. People don't feel safe, and I think they feel that conservatives can handle that better, Scott said. Stephanie Hancock bounced back to lead the Ward 4 race this year after campaigning unsuccessfully in 2022 for the seat in the Colorado House of Representatives held by Democrat Ayman Joday. As the only new face on the council, Hancock brings a background in Aurora's business and arts communities as the co-founder of 5280 Artist Co-op and president of the Aurora Cultural Arts District. She is also a U.S. Air Force veteran and a graduate of Texas Southern University. Her campaign platform included tackling crime by forcing more criminals to pay restitution and by offering job training and mentorship opportunities to Aurora youth. She also expressed interest in reducing street homelessness as well as addressing housing affordability through economic development and advocating for reform of the state's construction defect laws. Hancock said members of the public shared concerns with her about the problems of homelessness and crime moving from Denver to Aurora though she credited her own victory to having honest conversations with voters and letting people know that she plans on representing constituents regardless of their political background. When people get away from the partisan politics of these things and look at the bread and butter issues that we face, it's common across the board, she said. I'm very grateful by the fact that I had support from Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliateds which tells me that people want to see real change happen in our city. And I want to earn their trust by doing exactly what I said, which is to attack the issues that face our beloved city. What they said. Mike Kaufman, Republican, Mayor. Kaufman did not respond to request for comment Thursday. Juan Marcano, Democrat, Mayor. I'm very happy with the race I ran. I ran authentically as myself. I had a phenomenal campaign manager, and I'm very proud of how much I was able to raise as a grassroots candidate. It's just that with the fundraising past a certain point, you can't really compete. But I am thrilled that Allison Combs not only won citywide with record votes, but one as the first LGBTQ woman on our council and as a Democrat socialist like me. I love to see it. I think that at least bodes well over for, overall for the future of the city. Jeff Sanford, Demo Democrat Mayor. I don't have any regrets other than I didn't win, but I don't look at it as I didn't win. The electorate picked who they thought would do the best for the city, and he just happened to be an incumbent. 
I wish we could bring down the temperature on politics and work more toward what's best for the city. I know that's very idealistic. I know, and, and I knew it was when I went in. I stood for not raising campaign funds or spending them. That was a strategic error on my part, but I wouldn't do anything differently. Allison Combs, Democrat, at large. I'm certainly glad that I was able to get my message out to folks and that the support they support me continuing to serve the city in more of a city-wide capacity. I think I had the benefit of having the support of my existing constituents who I've been responsive and supportive to. But I also have built a lot of relationships with folks across the city in all six wards. It's a lot easier to stave off personal attacks when people you know personally. Curtis Gardner, Republican, at large. I feel pretty confident going into Election Day, and being an incumbent certainly has an advantage. But you still have to run your race, and we were able to knock on tons of doors, thousands of doors, and that was in addition to outreach through all of the other stuff, like mailings and digital ads. By and large, most people want the same things. Thomas Mays, Democrat, at large. I'm feeling great. I plan to continue doing the work. I just won't get paid for it, I guess. It is what it is. I'm excited the campaigning part of it is over, and we've got some challenging days ahead of us. That's basically my mindset now. Where do we go from here? I think we ran well. I try to run a very clean race, without mudslinging, and I've seen a lot of that being done. And that's unfortunate, but that's politics. Juno Scott, Republican, at large. We ran a hard race with a lot of good support and came up short. It was close. I mean, all four of us candidates are within 7%. That's a close race. And my hat goes off to Allison and Curtis for running a great campaign. I'll also say that I met Thomas Mays, and I gained a friend through that. I enjoyed the process, and I hate to lose but I'm not bitter about it. I'll do it again, even if, I knew, uh, even if I knew the result. John Gray, Democrat, Ward 4. I will say it turned out to be a very interesting race. I believe my team has done a phenomenal job, as difficult as it was for me to step into a role that I'd never done before. Stephanie Hancock, Republican, Ward 4. I'm doing great, and I'm ready to get going. It was a hard race. We worked hard. We knocked on a lot of doors, and we talked to a lot of people. I want to let people know how much I appreciate their support and their faith in me, and that I intend to earn it right from day one. Angela Lawson, Republican, Ward 5. Lawson did not respond to the requests for comment Thursday. Chris Rhodes, Democrat. Ward 5. I'm obviously disappointed, kind of all the emotions, confused, sad, angry. We really need to start gearing up for 2025 if we're serious about taking the city majority. We can't put it off until the last minute and all of that stuff like we typically do. 
we need to start focusing on who we're going to run in 2025 and getting them support. That's kind of where my head is now. Francois Bergen, Republican, Ward 6. Bergen did not respond to request for comment Thursday. Brian Matisse, Democrat, Ward, Ward 6. The voter spoke. I lost. I've congratulated Francisco. I think the voters in Ward 6, and I would agree with this, believe that my opponent Francisco Bergen's responsiveness to them was an important factor. And I think she worked hard, and her involvement in the community likely was a big portion of the reason why she won. And so I think that should be acknowledged. Polis calls back state lawmakers to address spiking property taxes after voters kill proposition, Prop HH. Denver. Colorado Governor Jared Polis hoisted a red baseball bat and smashed emergency glass Thursday in a giddy demonstration for a very real crisis. Colorado homeowners are looking down the barrel of a potential 40% jump in property tax bills. After a ballot measure meant to quell soaring property taxes failed in Tuesday's election, Polis turned to the emergency option of calling a special legis legislative session to begin November 17th with the goal of providing homeowners relief before the year is out and many are stuck with unaffordable property tax bills. Prop HH was a ballot measure intended to reduce property taxes for homeowners and business owners. 60% of Colorado voters voted against the proposition, while 40% voted for it. I am calling this session to urge the legislature to bridge partisan divides and put people over politics to provide immediate property tax relief to Colorado's facing extreme spikes from their 2023 property bills, Polis said in a statement thir released Thursday. The cost of inaction is too high, Polis said earlier at the press conference, the red bat lying on the floor behind him. Senate President Steve Fenberg said that they will be laser-focused on providing short-term relief to those who are most vulnerable to rising, to rising cost of living, while protecting our schools and fire districts. Opponents of the measure weren't shy about their glee in the failure of the proposition and Polis relenting on calling for a special session, which they asked for earlier in the year. While Michael Fields, president of the conservative group Advance Colorado, which opposed the measure, was glad the, was glad the governor called the special session, he said he remains wary of what Colorado's majority Democratic legislature will accomplish. Other conservatives dogpiled on in social media and for the press. While it's disappointing that it took the overwhelming defeat of Prop HH to get their attention, it's certainly my hope that the governor and Democrats will now agree to common sense reforms to Colorado's property tax mess and not just a simple band-aid to a complex problem, House Minority Leader Mike Lynch said in statement from the Colorado House Republicans. Instead of addressing the concerns of homeowners a year ago, 
we now have only days to correct a mess that was avoidable. Man who shot Aurora Waffle House cook in 2020 over mask mandate gets 13 years. By Max Levy, Sentinel, Colorado staff writer. Aurora. The man who was refused service at an Aurora Waffle House for refusing to comply with COVID-19 mask rules and then returned a day later to shoot a cook in the stomach has been sentenced to 13 years imprisonment. Kelvin Watson, 30, entered the Waffle House restaurant at 12-8800 East Mississippi Avenue without a mask at around midnight on May 14, 2020. He was told he needed to wear a mask for staff to serve him due to COVID-19 mandates. He left and returned with a mask, but refused to wear it. When he was told again to leave, according to waitress, Watson pulled out a gun and threatened to shoot the restaurant's cook. He ultimately left the restaurant, and the incident was reported to police that morning. About a day later, police were dispatched to a shooting at the same Waffle House and discovered the cook who Watson had threatened had been shot in the stomach. The cook, who, su who survived the shooting, identified Watson as the shooter, and the wait staff said Watson was a regular at the restaurant. Watson pleaded guilty this month to attempted second-degree murder, a Class three felony, as well as a sentence enhancer for committing a violent crime with a weapon. He was sentenced by Arapahoe County District Court Judge Jacob Edson. Once released from prison, Watson will spend three years on mandatory parole. While restaurants and stores are public places, businesses have the right to refuse service or ask customers to leave their establishment. 18th Judicial District Attorney John Kellner said in a news release, the defendant drove back to the restaurant and shot an innocent employee for no reason other than doing his job. Andrew Hill leaves Denver 7 after almost 40 years by Nina Josh. For many who watch local news in the Denver metro area, Anne Trujillo has become a familiar household presence as a longtime news anchor with the Denver 7 News Station. Her confident voice and smile has filled local kitchens and living rooms across the regions. As families catch up on the day's top stories during the evening news cycle and before bedtime. After 39 years, Trujillo's common presence will soon change as she is set to officially sign off for the last time this month. As she turns the page to her next adventure, the Littleton resident says she plans to spend more time with family and figure out what her next big thing, figure out her next big thing. As opposed to saying she is retiring, Trujillo said she thinks of her next step as renovating, an idea she said she adopted from Chilean writer Isabel Alendia. I just feel like it's time for a change, she said. I just feel like there's so much more I want to do, and I can't even tell you what that is specifically. I just know that there are other things out there that I feel that, like I am young enough and capable, uh, capable enough to take on. Becoming a Broadcaster 
Trujillo was born in Santa Fe and spent some of her childhood in Los Angeles before her family moved to Littleton when she was in sixth grade. She attended East Elementary School, Uslid Middle School, and graduated from Littleton High School. As an avid reader, Trujillo always loved her English and literature classes growing up. Her first job, running errands at the Littleton Independent, foreshadowed her career in journalism, although she said she never really considered it as a kid. The first-generation college student started out as a business major, but decided to take an introduction to journalism class. After that, everything started to fall into place. The more I took journalism classes, the more I kept going in that direction, Trujillo said. It just kind of happened. She started at Mesa College in Grand Junction and then went to the University of Colorado Boulder. During college, she worked at a Spanish radio station with her mother, she said. When she was a senior, a friend told her about a broadcast job opening in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Although she hadn't considered broadcast, Trio took the advice of several women in the news industry who told her to pause her college career to take the job. In Scotts Bluff, on a team of only two newscasters, Trujillo was reading, shooting stories, writing newscast, conducting interviews, and hosting the show. I didn't know what on earth I was doing, she said. It was a great challenge, and I figured out very quickly that I liked it. After six months, she was hired by a station in Omaha. She continued building her skills and then returned to Colorado, where she started working at Denver 7 as a general assignment reporter in 1984. She moved up in the company, covering major news stories, including the Columbine and Aurora theater shootings, the Democratic National Convention in Denver, and three Broncos Super Bowl appearances, according to the Denver 7 website. While working at Denver 7, Trujillo completed her credits to officially graduate from CU Boulder in 2011. Representation Over the course of her career, Trujillo has been a role model and a mentor to other journalists, specifically working to make the TV news industry more inclusive for women and people of color. I think for me, I just felt like I never had that, she said. Being a woman, and more specifically a woman of color, was a rarity when Trujillo first started working in the industry. Initially, Trujillo said she was often assigned to cover education stories and stories related to children. The stations rarely covered communities of color. As time went on and she became more rooted in her role, Trujillo said she made an effort to make connections with people like her because she remembers wondering if she belonged. She also started to see her impact on viewers who saw themselves in her. I know how important it is to have representation within my industry, she said. The longer I stayed, the more I knew how valuable it was. I mean, it's funny when I think back. I guess what I would say is that I normalized having a brown-skinned woman with a Spanish surname on local news. Over the course of her career, Trujillo dedicated her time, mentorship, and leadership through the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and the Advisory Council to CU Boulder's Journalism Department.
When Trujillo left her job in Omaha, a co-worker left her a note that included a message about hope for more women in the TV news industry someday. We've come a long way, Trujillo said, reflecting on how the industry has changed since then. Trujillo has also served on the board of the Denver Scholarship Foundation, which helps Denver high schoolers take the next steps in their education. She also worked with There and Care, a nonprofit that helps families under the stress of a medical crisis. Love and Leaving When asked what her proudest accomplishment or biggest takeaway from her time at Denver, Denver 7 was, Trujillo did not mention her Emmy Awards or the long list of recognitions she has earned from groups including the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences, the Colorado Broadcasters Association, the Associated Press, Women in Communications, or the, or the Latino Leadership Institute. Instead, she spoke of something more personal. I met my husband there, she said, first day on the job. She was assigned to work with Mike Kalush, a news photographer, on her first day. Decades later, they have two children and two grandchildren. I feel like that was just my destiny, she said. Trujillo, who is still, who is still an enthusiastic reader, said she also loved how much she got to learn through her work as a news anchor. I love that I learn new and different things every day, whether it's a person who existed, a law that existed, a community where I didn't know there was this cool, cool little park or whatever it is, she said. I just have such an affinity for Colorado, having grown up here, and I just love when I know about new and different little special places that are not always so well known. As she leaves her role at Denver 7, she said she wants her viewers to know how much their trust has meant to her. I have loved every minute of my job, and I am humbled that people have felt trust in me. Honestly, I get choked up thinking about that, she said, tears starting to form in her eyes. When she posted about her decision to leave Denver 7 on Facebook, about 500 people commented, expressing how they would miss her work ethic, integrity, compassion, and dedication to diversity. It warms my heart that it was meaningful to me, but also meaningful to viewers, she said. Trujillo and Kalush still live in Littleton, where they have a vegetable garden and quite a few Harry Potter-themed decorations. The couple likes to visit downtown Littleton and attend community events, such as concerts. Trujillo's last day at Denver 7 is November 16th. Although viewers won't be able to see Trujillo on their television screens anymore, she said she's not going anywhere far. We're staying in Littleton, Trujillo said. There's no leaving. I just feel at home here. A Guide to Audio Tours by Joe Davis The self-guided audio tour has been common in the art world since the 1950s, but like many other virtual tools, there has been a rise in the popularity of audio tours in other industries due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Audio tours can add extra elements that visitors do not get when walking the areas alone, 
according to Luna Hernandez, who works in the Dinosaur, Dinosaur Ridge Welcome Center. The audio, audio tour definitely gives you more information than if you were to just walk the trail on your own, Hernandez said. We do have those outdoor plaques and stuff like that on the trail, so you still get some information when you're walking it. But with the audio tour, there is a resident geologist who guides you up the ridge and gives you a lot of information. Today it's not uncommon to plan a full-day trip complete with a tour of any place around the globe. This includes communities in the Denver metro region. Self-guided tours in the region cover art like the 40 West Art Line, local landmarks like Dinosaur Ridge, and whole natural regions like the I-70 audio tour. The key to finding these tours is deciding what to see, the level of planned involvement, and time allotted. What to see. Art was the original self-guided audio tour and is a popular self-guided tour focus. In Lakewood, the 40 West Art Line audio tours take participants through the growing artist district. There are three tour options, all narrated by art advocate and tour guide, Corinne Anderson. The Grit and Glitter Tool is a primer on the importance and legacy of West Colfax. The tour takes listeners through the neighborhoods going uh, toward Aviation Park in Little, Little, uh, Lakewood. The tour gives history and a sort of mini-art lecture on the outdoor art murals, and more along the busiest part of the 40 West Art District. The Art and Leisure Tour begins at Lamar Street Lake Rail Station and follows the track through some of Lakewood's outdoor art, architecture, and more. The Art and Leisure Tour also touches on Lakewood's agricultural heritage before ending at Mountain Air Park. The Transportation and Art Tour also begins at the Larimer Street Rail Station. It runs along Larimer Street to the 40 West Art District headquarters. The tour takes a historical slant and guides listeners through the history of the area in addition to highlighting the murals and outdoor art along the way. However, art is not the only focus of guided tours in the area. Take an urban stroll through the history of the Five Points neighborhood with a Five Points Business District walking tour. It takes listeners on a reverent tour of Denver's historic black neighborhood. The kids will love the blast to prehistoric Colorado in the Dinosaur Ridge audio tour. The tour is packed with dinosaur facts that will almost make the listener forget about the steepness of the 2.5-mile ridge climb. The Wild I-70 audio tour is more of a natural front-range focus that takes listeners from Golden to Glenwood. This tour is best done by car, bike, or motorized vehicle. It's 144 miles long and talks about wildlife, including historic animal migration facts, in addition to other natural history and environmental facts. There are other tours like the State Capitol Audio Tours which concentrates on the Capitol building in Denver. The Storyline Audio Tour touches on 15 sites integral to the history of the city of Aurora 
an Arapahoe County and the Highlands Ranch Mansion self-guided tour. What to consider? Choosing a tour can be a chore. There are a few things to consider before deciding, so a little research is required. Pricing is one issue con to consider. Some apps that offer a slew of guided tours also charge up to $50 per person. However, many of the self-guided tours are free to the public. The 40 West Arts Line tours are free, but the Dinosaurs Ridge tours cost $7 per, steaming, uh, per streaming device. Also, consider the activity level and time commitment. It can take about three hours to complete the Dinosaur Ridge audio tour, but there are actual fossils and tracks along the hike. Parts of the ridge itself is a drag mark from beasts that roamed the area millions of years ago, according to the tour. Only bikes and feet are allowed on the tour, so taking the Dinosaur Ridge tour is much more intense than the Highlands Ranch Mansion tour. There is also the weather and seasons to consider for any outdoor tour. The Wild I-70 tour is a brilliant idea for fall foliage. Also consider the drive in May or June when the wildflowers are in bloom and the baby animals are about. Some of the tours, like the Artline tours, have chapters so that listeners can schedule accordingly. Be sure to factor in the time of day. Sitting in traffic after an intense hiking tour is tougher than it seems at the beginning of the trip. Where to go? The, re the research before you go is key. To find the tours, look at the sites for places you wish to visit. Chances are there is an audio tour that you can preview before embarking. Several apps exist that compile the audio tours and the area in one place. However, sometimes the information on the apps is inaccurate and the price higher than the original site requires. So always go to direct websites. Inglewood to start flood reduction project. After issues with flooding, the City Council voted to implement the 21.5 million South Inglewood flood reduction project to improve the city's infrastructure. Chris Hargerth, Communications Director, said the Council voted to approve the project on October 2nd. The City plans to break ground before the end of November. City officials expect the project to be complete at the end of 2024. The South Inglewood Flood Reduction Project will reduce flooding in the South Inglewood drainage basin by constructing new stormwater detention ponds and making stormwater pipe improvements, Hargerth said. The stormwater detention ponds will be located along the west side of Nav South Navajo Street, just south of West Radcliffe Avenue. Tim Hoos, Deputy Director of Public Works, Engineering and Asset Management, said the city is looking forward to completing this project. After four years of carefully planning, studying, and designing work as well as securing the necessary funding to improve the city's storm sewer system, the city is excited to begin construction of this important stormwater project that will improve the durability and resilience of the city's storm sewer system for current and future generations of Inglewood residents, who said. Hargerth said pipe 
improvements will be made into various areas including Rotolo Park, Stanford Avenue, South Navajo Street, and Oxford Avenue. Hargirth said planning for the project began in 2019. Elements of the project are expected to continue to improving infrastructure in the South. Hargirth said detention ponds will be constructed to help reduce flooding. During rain events, the stormwater detention ponds will fill with water providing storage for runoff, Hargirth said. When the rain stops, the stormwater detention pond is designed to drain within 24 to 48 hours following rain or snow melt events. Hargooth said the large pond will be open for recreation or passive open space once it drains. Construction of the stormwater detention ponds will require demolishing existing buildings on property acquired by the city in April 2022, Hargooth said. After demolition, many yards of dirt will be removed from the site to create storage for stormwater runoff. Next, the city will install portions of new stormwater piping with a machine that tunnels below the surface. This tunnel boring machine will install a storm sewer pipe on Stanford Drive and Stanford Avenue west of Rotolo Park. Certain sections of road will be excavated to create bur uh, burrowing pits which will then be used to insert and remove the boring machine and install the new storm water pipe, Hargooth said. Hargooth said the tunneling work will allow residents to continue using Stanford Drive and Stanford Avenue near Rotella Park during construction of the project. Hargooth said the city will install a new storm water pipe by open-cut trench evacuation at various locations at the project site including Rotella Park, along Stanford Avenue east of Navajo Street, and along Navajo Street between Stanford Avenue and Quincy Avenue. Installing these pipes will require full and partial road closures and detours. This type of pipe installation is more cost-effective than tunneling, but impacts traffic more, Hargus said. Additionally, Hargooth said the project will include the rehabilitation of the existing stormwater pipe on Oxford Avenue into Navajo Street to the South Platte River west of Santa Fe Drive. Most of the repairs will be completed below ground by assessing the pipe from manholes at the surface, Hargooth said. Short segments of pipe at the intersection of Navajo Street and Oxford Avenue and on Oxford Avenue west of Santa Fe Drive will require digging to repair. Hargooth said traffic control will be needed at the repair sites, but there wouldn't be any road closures. Lastly, Hargooth said a section of Rotolo Park will be regarded as dirt and will be moved to direct stormwater into the new stormwater pipes and the detention ponds. This work will close a section of Rotolo Park for a period of time and disturb areas with existing grass, Hargooth said. Any grass and landscaping impacted by this work will be restored after construction is complete. Hargooth said this project will improve the city storm system and allow for stormwater to flow through the system from upstream locations, including areas around Acoma Street, south of Tufts Avenue, and Rotola Park.
the city of Inglewood realized addressing the challenge of localized flooding would be costly, Harguth said. The city contracted with engineering experts to identify and prioritize the most effective flood reduction project, projects and how to invest city resources wisely. Incumbent Pan Grove wins race for Littleton City Council at large seat. Incumbent Pan Grove will serve another four-year term as an at-large city council member in Littleton after winning the race against local business owner Chris Campbell. According to unofficial results, 62% of voters supported Grove in the November 7th election. Grove, who has served at-large on Littleton City Council since 2020, said she would focus on Littleton's natural environment, supporting businesses, and preserving historical assets. I appreciate the confidence that the citizens of Littleton have put in me to carry on for the next four years and continue to advocate for them, Grove said. Campbell said he was sorry he did not get the result he wanted, but he learned a lot throughout the process. I thoroughly enjoyed meeting the Littleton residents who obviously have a great concern for their community and were more than happy to discuss the issues, he wrote in a text message to the Littleton Independent. It's inspiring to know that there are so many good people out there. I will always wish Littleton all the best moving forward. Grove will serve alongside future District 2 Council Member Robert Reckhard and future District 4 Council Member Andrea Vukovic-Peters, who both ran unopposed for their respective seats. I'm really excited for the opportunity to serve the community, said Reichardt, who recently termed out his seat on the Littleton Public Schools Board of Education. He said he is excited for the opportunities the passage of 3K will bring for Littleton. Ballot measure 3K, which permits the city to retain about $6 million in extra revenue to use for capital improvements, passed with support from 63% of voters. Peter said she is honored to be elected to City Council. I believe in our community's potential and the positive direction we're heading, she wrote in a text to the Littleton Independent. I am really looking forward to working with each and every person in this council. I think it is a lovely group of people all committed to the same cause and that is exciting. The new council members will be sworn in on November 21st. Lindley McCrary and Cherie Garcia Cooper declare victory in Littleton School Board Race by Nina Josh. Linda McCrary and Sherry Garcia Cooper have declared victory in the race for the Littleton Public Schools Board of Education. Brian McClaley and Michelle Redfern also ran in the race for two seats on the board. The winners will serve a four-year term on the five-member board. According to unofficial results, McCrary received about 30% of the community's votes. Entering her second term on the board, she said she is excited and relieved for campaign season to be over and ready to get back to work. I just feel really honored and grateful to be able to serve this district for another four years, McCrary said. 
McCrary said she is looking forward to continuing the work of elevating student voice in the district and working towards compensating staff in the way they deserve to be compensated. In December, McCrary will become president of the Colorado Association of School Boards. She said she will use this role to advocate for school funding at the state level. After starting off narrowly behind McCauley at the first drop of results on election night, Garcia Cooper slowly and steadily gained votes. Unofficial results posted the evening of November 9th put her 642 votes ahead of McCauley. The county has counted all of its received ballots and will continue to count ballot cures and military and overseas ballots through November 15th. The county will certify election results on November 27th. Based on the current members, Garcia Cooper is declaring victory with about 27% of the votes. I ran a grassroots campaign and worked against big pockets and outside interest, Garcia Cooper wrote in a statement to the Littleton Independent. The victory ensures that the majority of the Littleton Public Schools community does not want Douglas County politics in their district, and it solidifies that the district is not for sale. She said she is excited to represent all students, including students of color, students who are experiencing hardships, marginalized students, and students who choose a pathway other than a four-year college degree. McClawley, who received about 25% of votes, said the election results are a setback to the approximately 14,000 parents, grandparents, and citizens in Littleton who voted for him. These people simply wanted a board member who cared enough about their kids that he or she would take real steps to improve their children's educational outcomes, he wrote in a statement to the Littleton Independent. They wanted a candidate with a clear vision and a common-sense approach to achieve excellence. He said he appreciates the support of those who voted for him, and he cares about their children and their futures. I wish that I could have served them in our schools, and that others in Littleton had also shared our vision, he wrote. Michelle Redfern, who received over 10,000 votes, thanked those who supported her. In life, how many people really get a show of hands that show that there's 10,000 people that believe in them? She said of the 18% of voters who voted for her, 10,000 people believe that I could do a job, and I can tell you, I don't know 10,000 people. She said that although she did not win a seat, she feels like she is a winner. She said her worth is not tied to a number, and she is grateful for her life and the opportunity to keep volunteering at Arapahoe High School. When you believe in something, you just keep go doing good, she said. The new school board members will be sworn in on November 16th. Thank you for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.